Well, greetings again. Thank you for being here this morning. Welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church, and a special uh, thanks to uh, those of you that are uh, viewing uh, via live stream. Thank you for your patience. Uh, thank you for uh, still uh, making time to be a part of the church that you love. Uh, you are thought about, contemplated. Uh, we are glad that you're here. I'm, uh, I'm glad uh, that you're here as well. Welcome. We're picking up where we left off in Mark's gospel. But I want to remind you what we have experienced in these past few scenes from that gospel. We've seen <clears throat> miracles. We've seen miracles uh, told to us in a rather funny way. There's uh, an Emily Dickinson poem called Tell the Truth But Tell It Slant. And I feel as though here we've seen miracles of Jesus, but they, they, they strike us in a bit of a funny way. Uh, Jesus, he calms a storm with his very words, but the disciples are a bit strange, aren't they? Scared for their life, chastising uh, Jesus because he is sleeping, and then uh, seemingly filled with fear as a result of the miracle. Uh, Jesus, he uh, delivers a man from uh, several uh, demons, and in the city asks him to leave. A woman touches him in a crowd. The disciples are surprised by this. A little girl is raised from the dead, but just before she's raised from the dead, uh, the entire house of that little girl is laughing at Jesus. We have these miracles, but they come to us at a bit of an angle. And here we have Jesus preaching. We don't get the words of his sermon in this passage, but Jesus is preaching, and yet the audience is offended. Again, something happens that we don't uh, expect. There's a few little, little theologians with us here this morning, and uh, I'm sure there are some watching the live stream. Uh, little theologians, uh, do you know how when you build a puzzle and there's only one more piece to put in the puzzle, and you can see in the puzzle there's this gap where that one piece fits, but I want you to draw a picture of that one piece not fitting. It's the last piece of the puzzle, but for some reason it just... It doesn't fit. Well, our passage this morning is Mark chapter 6, and it's short. We're looking at just the first six verses of this passage. But before we read that together, would you join with me in prayer? How good of you, Father, to speak to us, to make yourself known. How good of you even to uh, conflict against our presuppositions about who we think you ought to be. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your character, and thank you for revealing yourself as you really are. Now, would you help us in the reading, the study, and the preaching of your word to set aside our presumptions about you and be taught who you are? Would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. So again, Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 1. Listen to God's word. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, 
where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of our Lord. I don't necessarily mean to bring up a bad subject, but you know when you're in an argument with someone and they speak to you as if they know exactly how you think. They presume to know what you're thinking, why you're doing what you do. They presume to know your motives. And it happens in the setting of an argument, so tensions are already risen. But for someone to say that they know what you were thinking when you did something, or to say that they uh, know why it is that you said what you said, when they, when they take that step and they go into your mind and your heart and they presume to know exactly why you're doing everything that you do, well, how does that make you feel? I know how it makes me feel. It's crossing the line in an argument. How dare you presume to know what I'm thinking? You see, if someone claims to know that about you, well, it's rather offensive. In this passage, it has something uh, about that in it. Uh, There is a presumption that is made about uh, Jesus. Jesus uh, preaches but they presume to know Jesus actually better than Jesus knows himself. And and really the theme of this passage is that the gospel does this to us. The gospel critiques us. Just as we think that we're critiquing the gospel, the gospel critiques our presumptions about the gospel. It's just when we think that we're critiquing Jesus, we can imagine a Jesus himself critiquing our presumptions about Jesus. This is something that the gospel does. And it's painful. It strikes us in an ill way. But this is what the gospel does. The gospel critiques our presumptions about the gospel. And what the gospel tells us is that everyone in this room and everyone is viewing by uh, live stream, uh, everyone is commanded to set aside their presumptions and to repent and believe in the truth of the gospel. That is what the gospel commands of us. There's so many things about that that are uncomfortable to us. This passage is just six verses, and I think it divides uh, rather handily uh, one through three and then four uh, through six. And the first half of the passage is, I believe, a tutorial about how our presumptions work. A tutorial about how our presumptions work, verses one through three. 
And then in verses 4 through 6, there's actually a warning about those presumptions. A warning about those presumptions. But verses 1 through 3 are, uh, in many ways, a tutorial. Uh, Listen to the details of how Mark gives us the information of the scene. Uh, Mark tells us in verse 1 that Jesus, he went away from there. Do you remember where there was? There was the home of the uh, ruler of the synagogue, uh, the one uh, in whose house Jesus rose uh, his little girl from the dead. But when Jesus uh, went away from there, it's probably a reference to the entire city of the ruler's, uh, ruler of the synagogue's home, uh, and that is the city of Capernaum. And Mark says that Jesus, he came to his hometown, literally uh, his uh, father's place, fatherland. And this can be no, none other than Nazareth. We know Jesus, of course, was born in Bethlehem. And we know that he made his uh, adult home in the city of Capernaum, maybe very near to the very house of Peter in Capernaum. But Jesus spent the bulk of his time in the city of Nazareth. This is the city in which he, he grew to adulthood, and it's about 20 miles away. And so uh, Jesus, he went from there uh, to the city of Nazareth. And Mark says that his disciples followed him. His disciples followed him. Mark's very clear about that. These are the twelve. And the twelve, they're with Jesus. Some of them surely have been to Nazareth, but not all of them have been to Nazareth. But they, they follow Jesus. And the way Mark frames the scene is he's framing it in such a way that the disciples are, be, are being led by Jesus to Jesus' hometown. Jesus seems to know what's going to happen in that hometown. And he wants his disciples to witness it. It's a tutorial on how presumptions work. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. That Jesus would have been afforded this this opportunity to teach, perhaps because of his age, perhaps because of his reputation, perhaps simply because everyone in the city of Nazareth, they knew who he was. And so he was given an opportunity to exposit from the Hebrew scriptures. And the disciples, of course, are there. They're not mentioned any longer. They're witnessing what's happening. Luke tells us this scene in Luke chapter 4. And when Luke gives us this scene, he actually tells us that Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah and Jesus is expositing Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in Luke's gospel, uh, after Jesus uh, reads that, uh, perhaps he said more than just these words, but uh, at the very end, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that's the content of the sermon that Luke gives us, but it's missing in Mark's gospel. Mark tells none of that. Why do you think that is? Now, some believe it's because Mark is describing it actually in a different, a different occasion. 
But I don't think that's true. I think this is the very same occasion, Jesus going to Nazareth and teaching. But Mark, he withholds the, the content of the sermon, the passage of the sermon, uh, and the words at the end of that sermon. And I believe that he does that because Mark wants us to see that no matter what Jesus said, no matter what Jesus proclaimed, the hearts of the synagogue were against him. And that's where Mark focuses our attention. He wants us to see the hearts of those who are in attendance at the synagogue when Jesus preaches. And so Mark, he rather excises the contents of the sermon that we might see, as he says in verse 2, that the hearers were astonished at what Jesus was saying, even though we're not given here the content And the disciples, of course, are witnessing this. Uh, Verse 2, they're astonished. But notice what Mark does. Mark is focusing on the response of the hearers rather than the words of the preacher so that we would see these hearers, well, they, they, they change, they transform almost before our very eyes. And it may be a little bit trite or a little bit silly, but as we think about uh, this happening It's happening before the eyes of the disciples and similar to uh, what we might experience uh, with a YouTube tutorial. There's steps that are being shown to the disciples. And Mark, he captures these steps. Because do the hearers of Jesus remain astonished or do they transform into something else? Look at verse 3. The ones who are astonished now become the ones who take offense. And while the word uh, in the Greek for astonished in verse 2 is almost always positive in the New Testament, it's to be overwhelmed, it's to be amazed, it's to be astounded. How exciting that is. Jesus is preaching. Oh, if my hearers were always that way, astounded and overwhelmed. But in verse 3... They become something different, which in the Greek is skandalizo. And you perhaps didn't hear it, but the word scandal is in that word for offense. And so they're astonished, but they come to a point where what Jesus is saying is actually causing a scandal uh, in their very synagogue that Sabbath day. And in Luke 4, Luke tells us they're so offended that they're actually filled with wrath and they literally run Jesus out of the town and they attempt to hurl him over a cliff. But here in Mark's gospel, Mark actually uh, takes us from astonished by Jesus to then finding Jesus scandalous. Let's pause here and notice something that is obvious to me, perhaps though it's not obvious to you. There's a real problem in sharing the gospel with others because that which we call good news, it really depends upon uh, quite a bit of bad news. And our hearers, if we're sharing the good news properly, well, they ought to notice that bad news. The bad news is an important part of the gospel. The gospel tells us that we are sinners, that we are uh, born into a state of sin. And if we don't have Jesus rescuing us, if we don't have Jesus ransoming us, well, then we are completely and utterly desperate for all eternity. 
that's actually what the gospel says about us, regardless of what you think about yourself or what you think about Jesus and the gospel and the power of God to save. And what happens in our lives, the reason why the good news uh, is uh, so hard to share because of the bad news that accompanies it, what we do in our lives is that we somehow figure out how to live life in such a way that we fool ourselves into thinking that we can live without the gospel. Rather than resolve the matter by acknowledging who we are and, and reaching out to Jesus for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel, rather than doing any of that, we make presumption upon presumption upon presumption. We instead use our lives to build these various coping mechanisms, these life habits that help us get through life without ever believing in Jesus and the offer of the gospel. And, and this can look different, can't it? Very different. Some will think simply that they're a good person and they have no need for any additional goodness. They're fine. Some find that they're simply not as bad as other people and they find great confidence in being not as bad as other people. Some believe that uh, they will never be held accountable for the way that they live their lives, the things that they do, the things that they say, the things that they think. And some, uh, they uh, build this coping mechanism that just says accountability itself, it just doesn't matter. It, It will never matter because there's no higher authority at all. So accountability, well, accountability doesn't exist. And all these are, are presumptions about who Jesus is. I'm not bad. I don't need his help. And that's how we make it through life without Jesus. And the good news of the gospel exposes all of this. And it can feel an awful lot like bad news. The gospel says, I know why you think that way. The gospel describes your motives, your intentions. The gospel says that Jesus knows more about you than you know about you. And that Jesus is authoritatively right. And that you, you're just fooling yourself. Wow. This passage is about that feeling. Because what happens when Jesus preaches is a whole lot of murmuring breaks out. If you uh, look at the most reliable Greek manuscripts, uh, there actually is punctuation in Greek. And you can count at least three question marks in this passage. But in the ESV, trying to make sense of all of these statements, there actually are five question marks. And Mark, he gives us all of this detail that we might see how people are squirming under the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we might see how they're presuming to fashion Jesus after their own image and to, despite what Jesus says to them, to actually give back to Jesus what they think is a better view of who he is. So in verse 2, they say, where did this man get these things? This man may be who he is, and these things that he's saying may be what they are. But where did this man get those words? They don't 
belong together. And, and they want to separate Jesus and his character from Jesus and his words. Where did this man get these things? You know people who say that I respect Jesus and I respect the things that he says, but they don't want to put those things together such that Jesus would actually mean the things that he says. They ask also in verse 2, what is the wisdom given to him? Literally in the Greek it says, what is the kind of wisdom given to him? He's saying something that sounds like wisdom, but it's a kind of wisdom, a version of wisdom. I'm not not sure I like that wisdom. I'm okay saying he's wise, but only if he's wise in a certain kind of wisdom. It almost feels a bit like as Mark tells us these questions, uh, breaking down their thought processes, it's almost like Mark is showing us the various steps that they're walking back from Jesus. Also in verse 2, they say, how are such mighty works done by his hands? You see, they've heard about the works of power that Jesus had done, but they haven't seen them. And it's not simply that they're asking to see them. Jesus, why don't you show us something? That seems to be present in this question as well. But they're saying to themselves that those things that I heard, they certainly weren't done by this guy, not this person. Again, The person of Jesus and the works of Jesus are being separated just as the person of Jesus and the words of Jesus were separated. And and verse 3, some scholars think that this this really is their their central presumption about Jesus. Verse 3, they say, is not this the carpenter? By the way, we're told elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus is the son of a carpenter. But here we're told that he actually was a carpenter. And the word for a carpenter is a tectone. It's a, he's, a te- he's a technician, Jesus. Uh, he's the kind of person that, that creates things with his hands. That's what a tectone is. Jesus, he works in the medium of wood. But they're saying, is not this the carpenter? And if he's a carpenter, a technician, someone who works with their hands, that's not good enough. Is this not the carpenter? And then uh, they say, are not his sisters here with us? But his dad isn't mentioned. Perhaps uh, some commentators are right in supposing that Jesus' dad at this time is dead. But uh, are not his sisters with us? And the only brother that we know about in this list is uh, the first mentioned, uh, James. James uh, turned out to be a leader in the church at Jerusalem. But we, we don't know very much about these people at all, but they're huge associations in the hearers in Nazareth. We know this guy. He's calm and he's one of us. And do you feel all of their presumptions about who Jesus is, who Jesus should be? In fact, who Jesus is allowed to be? These questions all reveal presumptions made about Jesus. And really what they're doing is they're making Jesus in their own image. And have you shared the gospel with others? And have you felt that as well? This Jesus, he can't do that. He can't mean that. Well, Jesus, he seems to have brought the disciples to his hometown of Nazareth. That the disciples might witness exactly what's happening. As you preach the gospel, expect astonishment to turn to offense. Do you know why I believe that's the case? Do you know what Jesus is about to do? Jesus is about to send his disciples out. 
and they will go and they will preach that same gospel message and they will also experience astonishment turn to offense and in fact park at offense. It's a tutorial on making presumptions about Jesus. But it's also a warning about our own presumptions. Verses uh, 4 through 6 carry this forward. You know, uh, not, uh, the, the, the only words that uh, Jesus uses to summarize what's happening here actually appear uh, in verse 4. But I want you to consider back in, or down in verse 5 that notice that in these sections from Mark's gospel, we've seen a lot of miracles, and they've been exciting miracles. But on the heels of a dead girl coming to life, we read that he could do no mighty work here. Isn't that a massive shift? Do you notice that? And this means that, that God is not authorizing Jesus to perform uh, many miracles here. Raising a girl from the dead in Capernaum now has become Jesus laying his hands on a few sick people and healing them. Now that stands out to us, but Jesus, he explains why in verse 4. He summarizes this entire scene. Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. Now Jesus, he may be using a well-worn aphorism of the day. It doesn't seem like these words are a quote from the Old Testament. But there's two main ideas that we need to take away from these words of Jesus. Know, know that these words are Jesus' own summary of how, what we're to understand in this passage. And the first idea we're to take from Jesus' words are this. First, Jesus is claiming to be God's own prophet. It is a statement of authority. This is exactly what they would deny, but Jesus is claiming to be God's prophet that Moses said to look for. Moses says in Deuteronomy 18 that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Moses promised that, and Jesus is claiming to be that very prophet. Moses says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. So the first thing we need to take away from the statement of Jesus in verse 4 is that Jesus is claiming to be the prophet from the Old Testament that the Jews were told to expect. The second thing is this, Jesus is actually indicting God's people. He really is indicting that very audience. You know, if Jesus could uh, go back into the story of the Old Testament and pull out uh, these uh, various images, uh, Jesus could go back and he could pull out uh, positive things, but Jesus goes back into that story and he actually pulls a dark habit from the history of the Jewish people. And the dark habit is this, that they're known for punishing and ignoring and killing God's prophets. The closest Old Testament scene to Jesus' words are that of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was from Anathoth. And the people from Anathoth said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 11, you continue to prophesy, we'll kill you. That's what they said to Jeremiah. They say that you prophesy, you speak God's words, and we'll kill you. And, and Jesus, he seems to be connecting himself with Jeremiah, but what he wants to draw out is that the people are a people 
who despise him. To hold Jesus without honor is the same Greek word for despising him. For the most of Jewish history, the Jews found that Jesus didn't meet their expectations. And because of that, he was despised. In verse 4, the words of Jesus are to teach us primarily those two things. Jesus is claiming to be God's prophet and Jesus is indicting God's people. But as I wrap up this sermon, I believe there's a very fitting application for us that's also here in verse 4. You see, Jesus is speaking to those who don't believe him. Look at verse 6. He marveled because of their unbelief. And so uh, he's speaking to those who have heard the gospel and they have said no to the gospel. When Jesus uses the word unbelief in verse 6, it's a powerful, powerful word. He's saying that they have refused to have faith in him. They've refused to believe. And that's the first time in Mark's gospel that that word is used. So it's a powerful word. Uh, Jesus is speaking to individuals who have proven themselves to not be believers. At least in this moment, they don't believe. And because they don't believe, unless they repent and believe at a later date, they'll suffer eternal judgment. But the application underneath that for us here this morning is there's an application for those who are particularly close to Jesus. You see, Jesus, he calls out that these are individuals uh, who are close to him, his uh, home, his relations, his household. And is that not us as those who profess faith in Jesus? Is that not us members of his family and do you think it's possible that uh, we being uh, members of his family among his relatives those close to him those supernaturally and spiritually uh, connected to him united to him do you think it's possible that people like us that we could presume to make Jesus in our own image do you think that's possible I believe that's the application of our passage. That it's not only possible, but that it's probable. That we need to find ourselves on our knees rather frequently, asking that God would forgive us for presuming upon Jesus, presuming to know better than Jesus. Little theologians, I ask you to draw a picture of that puzzle piece. It doesn't seem to fit in the only hole in the puzzle. And oftentimes as Christians, what we do is what I did as a kid with puzzle pieces. And if you uh, put them in your mouth and if you get them nice and moist, you can actually like bend the little bits and pieces and you can, get, you can get a puzzle piece to fit any gap at all. And do we do that when we presume upon Jesus to know more than he does? We need to recognize this about ourselves and we need to stop. Jesus, he is our king He should never be questioned. He should never be doubted. We study him in his word and we take him at his word, even if it doesn't seem to fit our expectations of him. We give to him our life and our worship, even as we want to give our lives and worship to ourselves or to our careers. 
And we accept what he has given us as the ordinary means for our provision. We don't look for other ways for nourishment. We trust that his word and prayer and fellowship and the life of the church and worship together, that these are his ordinary means by which he cares for us and nourishes us, even though we wouldn't do it that way. And we'd like him to do some other stuff for us as well, like make us wealthy and successful and loved by all. Presumptions, presumptions, presumptions. I want to encourage all of us to recognize that it's very hard just to take Jesus' word and to accept his ordinary means of care for us in the current setting of our world right now. I don't know if you are depressed or despondent or frustrated by life right now, but your Jesus is king, and this is what he has for you, and this is what he has for me. And perhaps we just need that reminder, gently, that we might see that in ourselves, Even if we're describing it as something as silly as moistening the edges of a puzzle piece to make it fit in our own system. And we need to repent and acknowledge that we are indeed well cared for, even though it's probably not the way we would care for ourselves. He is our king. Let's not presume. Would you join me in prayer? Jesus, you are good, and your word is true, and your will is right, and your reign will bring about your objective. Would you forgive us for presuming otherwise? We thank you for being our patient king. In your name, amen.